purpose then of penalty. Now watch the sweet, beautiful, harmonious, lovely development. It is God's love for the happiness of moral beings that has caused him to appoint rebellious sinners to go to hell. His love. His love for the well-being of moral creatures. God purposes the happiness of all moral beings in proportion to their condition and attitude toward him. He has had to appoint punishment because of the seriousness of the crime. That should have prevented disobedience. It is not a question now of one individual down here and God in heaven. Obviously now, to all of us here, if we were alone on the earth and God came to deal with us as one private individual, would God have all the problems concerning the dealing with sin that he now has? What do you say? Why? No one else would be affected. No one else... Uh, what do we say that this affectation is? Supposing men would be. Now let's... Uh, people will hear the modernist comes along and with his emotionalism and say, well, now God is just like that. He can turn a new page. He says, that's all right. Uh, recognize the good in all men and, and turn and, and uh, have a new attitude toward God and, and God is just like that. He has no problems. And so the Ossinians way back there and the liberals of our day believe in what they call the moral influence theory of the atonement. That there are no real governmental problems and there are no problems of the forgiveness of sin except as relates to our own individual transformation. We need a moral influence to change us. Beyond that, God has no problem. Well, we each know the foolishness of that. So by virtue of the fact that there are multitudes of us here on earth, what God does to one is going to affect the well-being and happiness of every other, isn't it? Can God just suddenly forgive sin? Now, I am so happy and cannot praise the Lord enough for leading me into, if it's wrong, it's a wonderful error. When I think of the Bible revelation that God is love and that he is personally ready to forsake all of his retributive justice and forgive sinners freely by his grace. That has a new meaning to my thinking. That is the most forceful thing that the Bible reveals, that God's not like we are. Which one of us as Christians have thoroughly conquered all retributive justice in our own strength. If we conquer it, it is by the grace of God, 
And it's not the grace of God eradicating something, but it's the grace of God holding it down. Well, if God cannot hold down his own retributive justice, how shall he help us to hold it down? You can think this through from an amazing number of angles. But the most powerful message of the Bible is simply this, and to my hearing, it's not asserted in our day. The most powerful message is that God is such an abundant collection of perfect love that this beautiful and motivating force of love is willing to forgive freely by His grace if He can find a way to wisely do it. Or that God has achieved the perfect conquest of what has conquered every one of us. He has achieved the perfect conquest of retributive justice. And he is concerned now only with the welfare of his creatures. Darius was in that situation, wasn't he? These other presidents got dear old Daniel in a bad way. And we might say in our day, they pulled a sleeper play on him. They found him asleep in his thinking. Because the testimony says that he knew that Daniel wouldn't do that. And as soon as he was reminded of that fact, great gloom came over him because he knew that Daniel wouldn't do that. So that was as good as meaning that he'd lost Daniel, the, the greatest leaning post of his whole regime. And he no doubt was thinking of his own welfare, too. But here had been written the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Whosoever shall ask of anyone during this period of time, except of the old king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Here was the law established. Of course, Daniel wouldn't be intimidated. And if these lions were going to usher him out of this world, that would be a favor. He was just here as a tenant anyway. He almost died down in this situation or in that. But here the event came. His guilt was proved. They'd heard him pray. They came and told the king. There was no argument about that. The king was torn between judicial opposites. The scriptures say that no one could entertain him that night. They tried to bring him music, as usual, or this or that, but he took off his fine robe. Why all the excitement? In Darius' mind, will you tell me? Wasn't he supreme ruler? What was the problem? What did he want to do? What does the scripture say? He wanted to forgive. How bad? He labored till the going down of the sun. They'd never seen him like that before. So out of his heart, he wanted to do what? Spare Daniel. 
did he seemingly have the authority to do it? For a while, anyway. Well, why didn't he do it? Word was at stake, his whole system of law, his whole, the whole the dealing of the situation. He'd be making, he'd be being a respectable person then. Yes. Why? Now place God in this situation that the liberals say he's in. I say it's the most glorious message of the Bible, and I'm exceedingly happy for the development of this past winter and summer on the nature and the moral character of God. It's been such a delight to my soul just to consider and develop what the Bible says about God. So it's the heart-throbbing message we have to go forth with that God is not like we are. That God is willing of his own heart to freely forgive. If what? If we meet the condition. Well, they're both true. Well, if his justice can be satisfied. If his justice can be satisfied. And that involves uh, two things, essentially, doesn't it? What would our brother Brown think of some prisoner? No doubt he's had him who paced their cell with madness when he tried to testify the Lord, and these prisoners thought they were worthy to get out. I don't doubt. Why would no judge in his right mind even consider them for parole? There was no evidence that they changed their attitude, was there? They first didn't see themselves guilty. No. Second, they weren't sorry for him. No. Third, he wasn't convinced they wouldn't go out and do it again. No. All right, then, he couldn't maintain his government. Supposing God would forgive sins without an atonement. Now, I am exceedingly happy to say, and I don't want to be uh, misinterpreted, and I'm not worried about it, bless God. This is such a sweet morsel of truth that I'm going to hang on to it as long as I live, and I believe forever it's going to be the endless delight as we contemplate that God in his essential nature is different than anything we've ever learned about anywhere else. I say as far as God's essential nature, he has, has conquered his vindictive justice and is ready to exercise mercy freely by his grace, if what? Well, what condition? What's God's big, God's big worry now in, in the salvation of souls? That the attitude of the heart is changed. The disposition is, 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 is changed. Otherwise, if he can conquer the soul, they would take out the rebellion. That is certainly a great condition. But now Brother Brown, no doubt, has seen many criminals, especially after they have been uh, truly converted, and I don't doubt that he's heard many testify that they didn't deserve to get out of prison. When they saw their guilt before the community, what did they think? They felt that they had a debt to society, didn't they? And so 
when a prisoner gets to feel that he shouldn't ever be a subject of parole, then the parole board are ready to pick him up all the more. Because he has appreciated his debt to society. And so even if there be the most thoroughgoing repentance, there still cannot be forgiveness except what can be done. What justice? How important is that? What about all the holy angels? Does God have an obligation to them? Yes. Is his obligation to them more important than his obligation to sinners? No. Well, his obligation is to uphold a state of moral respect and appreciation and to establish those hindrances to disobedience that will prevent moral beings from going into that foolish pathway of sin. And so although men may be ever so repentant, God still cannot forgive sin except he can do what? Guarantee the obedience of moral beings and guarantee the restraint of disobedient beings and guarantee that those whom are saved and forgiven will be so impressed by the terrible reality of sin that they'll stay away from it. So God has great problems and that's what this scripture said, that God may be just and the justifier of them that believeth in Jesus. We have just discussed the fact that it wasn't retributive justice to himself that was involved. Then the only other kind of justice is that of public justice or the justice of the highest well-being of moral creatures. What did punishment do? What did we say that punishment was given for out of God's heart of love? And when you see that God has sent punishment out of his love for the highest well-being of all creatures in the universe, it creates a different God completely. And this was the sermon that satisfied the old judge there in Rochester. He says, when you get to the point of discussing the justice of eternal punishment, you'll never satisfy me. Here the old judge sat up there. He's been there night after night waiting for his problem. And the embarrassment was Brother Finney was staying in his home and his wife was a very godly lady praying for her husband. And he was saying every day, well, Finney, that's fine what you said last night, but you still haven't tackled my problem. When you get to show the justice of eternal punishment, then I'll, I won't have any legs to stand on anymore. And so although that church house was crowded, Finney preached a one-man sermon to some uh, to this judge sitting up there in the balcony. And he swung his eyes away from him just enough not to embarrass him. But on one of those swings, the judge had left his seat, and when he got back to see, the seat was empty. It was just like pulling the bottom out of Finney's sermon. Well, that's what it came 
for tonight was to convince him, and here he's gone. Must be that I failed. Oh, God, what shall I do now? And in this turnover of mental distress, he soon felt a tug on his coattail, and the old judge had gone down in the basement and come up the stairs to the platform, and he was tugging at Finney's tail, coattail in tears as I'm convinced, Finney. I'll take the anxious seat. You pray for me by name that I might be converted and really transformed by the grace of God. That was the key that broke Rochester. Right there. For if the lawyers say, well, now he's convinced, where do I stand? <laughs> and so we had an intelligence seeking after God for true reconciliation. So the gospel is that God loves the whole world in the same sense. He is ready to forgive if he can wisely do so. Those problems are essentially twofold. If God is going to forgive sin, what does he do when he forgives sin? We've discussed forgiveness. That forgiveness is the relaxation of a claim. When you forgive something, you do not talk about exact justice. Because if you have exact justice, then there's no forgiveness at all. Buy old Brother Brown $100. Brother Harry goes and gives him the $100 and said it was in my behalf. No forgiveness needs to take place between Brother Brown and I. His justice is strictly satisfied. No mercy needs to be extended. He does not need to come and say, now I forgive you. And so if the nature of the atonement is strict retributive justice, forgiveness is ruled out, and it would be ruled out from preaching, were there not so many instances in the Bible that bothered preachers? I was just collecting them here uh, two weeks ago in a certain connection. And when we see the occurrence in the church epistle, right in the very height of doctrinal presentation, the apostle says the forgiveness or remission of sins. And when he talks about that, he means that God faces our sins with their worthy penalty and takes his eraser and wipes it out, does like the prophet says, buries them in the depths of the sea, does like another scripture says, blotted out our transgression, like another scripture says, put them behind his back. So God, by, by forgiveness, faces our sin and removes them completely. Of course, he's talking about past sin. And I don't want to agitate that tremendous question. Nowhere in the New Testament did God say there was anything mysterious about the forgiveness of sin. Now, there would be something very mysterious if forgiveness of sin involved future sin. And in the absence of God's having failed to explain that to me, I can be expected to do just one thing. Understand that it's the forgiveness of past sins that are involved. And if I go forth with a gospel that promises the forgiveness of future sins, Someday I'm going to give account to my common sense as to where that's proved in the Bible. 
So God, in his wonderful grace, forgives us freely by his grace. Faith is our sin. Dispenses with all charges against us. What a tremendous thing. What a force comes to our thinking of the nature of God. We can get so excited as to the nature of God and his true being that we cease to worry what we're going to get from God. We cease to be concerned with our own experiences. We're so occupied with the glorious being of God that we say, Lord, forget about my experiences. Just let me look a little bit and enjoy myself. So God proposes to remove all the future consequences of our sins. Now, what were those consequences put in that situation for? Why did God threaten these consequences? To prevent sin. Now what is God proposing to do when he forgives us of our sins? He removes those consequences. What happens to the force toward godliness? So if God is going to forgive us our sin, he has got to substitute something that will perform the same function as the punishment of sinners would do. If he didn't make that substitution, what would be true of God? If God did not we have now a God who is willing to forgive. And we have a sinner who is willing to repent. Now then, we're supposing that God would forgive this repentant sinner apart from an atonement being made. What would God be doing? He will be removing the hindrance to sin or that thing which slows down the commission of sin. And then what would happen? Now those who have studied education somewhat know that it was John Dewey in about 1917 that climaxed a long evolutionary theological development rooting out the positive standard of morality. We have no absolute standard. That's what education is rooted on. And here we have the youngsters grown up who have no appreciation. There is no absolute standard. Supposing you and I were told that in an intelligent way. What would it do to us? It would break down our, our resistance to sin, wouldn't it? So if God is going to forgive sinners and remove the penalty of their sins, he has to do something that will accomplish the same end at least just as effectively as the punishment of sinners would do. If God didn't do that, what would be true of God? Yeah, unjust. unjust. What else? Unloving. Unloving to what? 
uh, being that way, what else, what would he be? Unrighteous? I'm looking for another word. That, those are all related. Unintelligent? Unwise? If God acted unintelligently, then what would God do? He would sin. So in order that God may be just, may be intelligent, may be loving, may be righteous to all his moral creatures, if he is proposing to remove the penalty of sin, he has to substitute something that shall have just as great a force in the moral universe deterring or hindering sin as the punishment for sinners exerted. And so the Lord Jesus came into this world of unspeakable humiliation imparted to men the standing of truth. When everyone else came to live, he came to die. He came to give his life a ransom. He came to do something. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. What joy was set before him? The joy of God being able to exercise the forgiving love that he already wanted to. That God being full of forgiveness now could do what his heart was full of. Did the atonement of Christ achieve? First of all, what was it? It was the Lord assuming upon his heart the sins of the whole world and dying out of the weight of those sins upon his spiritual heart and life. Jesus did not die at the crucifixion. As John makes very clear, we are not saved because somebody rejected Christ. We are not saved because somebody treated him so cruel as to drive nails into his hands and feet. We are not saved because of the violence that Peter describes in Acts 2.23. And what did you do, he goes on to say, having fastened to a cross. And as I mentioned, all of the text of that verse is not in the original. It must have been that Peter preached half with his hands. And so the thought is that having fastened to a cross, he lifted up from the ground. And he gives the idea of a thud that you put this cross in the hole when you should have received the Lord Jesus. And so he charged them with the murder of Christ. Now, they didn't do God a favor when they murdered Christ. That showed how man reacted to God's manifestation of holiness. But the glorious thing is that the atonement of Christ was accomplished in spite of the crucifixion, not because of it. When they came to uh, put the three subjects to death so they may honor their law, they were amazed that they found one of them dead and didn't need to kill him. And they perceived right away that this man died for a strange reason. And so they pierced his side and out of this side came blood and water, which physicians tell us is an indication of a ruptured, broken heart. So man treated Jesus by crucifying him. 
God marvelously worked at the same time that the atonement might be accomplished on the very cross that man had manifested his hatred to Jesus on. So in spite of man's vile rebellion, God has still accomplished his wonderful atonement, which was that the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless one, who therefore deserved no punishment, could take upon himself the sins of the whole world and die for our sins. And now through this force, the government of God is infinitely safe. If anybody thinks that God is compromising on his holiness, let the Spirit of God lead them to a comprehension of the cross of Christ. Why, Paul says, the preaching of the cross, them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved, who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so when the Spirit of God leads us into a conscious reality of that tremendous event, the heart is so slowed down from sin that it will never be able to be the same again. That cross has been so effective in being substituted for punishment of sinners that God can forgive sinners and still guarantee his obligations to the moral universe. And so we thank God that he can be just and the justifier of them who repent of sin, come and unite themselves by faith to Christ. And that salvation is an actual experience. Can you my eyes, please? Lord Heavenly Father, we've come to thee in this time together, not at our best as far as this world is concerned. We come from our various toils, wearinesses, and concentrations, and yet thou hast helped us today. Thank thee for the sweet blessing of thy spirit upon our hearts as we go about our work. Give us strength and courage. Help us to understand these elements of thy precious truth. Now help us and guide us on through life that we may serve thee to the best advantage lead us in all those things that we need to pray about and help us to pray during the moments of the day as we have opportunity for one another and for thy cause through all of us in jesus name we pray amen <laughs>